0: I can't help it. Um, Yes, I I could, but I'm not going to. Um, I'm going to talk about one of my kids for just a moment, even though he's still going to be in the room, and it's going to embarrass him because he hates whenever I talk about him. Um, That last song that we just sang, um, Laura told me she wanted to add some new music, and whenever she said death was arrested, I almost kind of... i just No, I probably got giddy. Um, uh, I love that song. Like, that... That song's awesome. I I love that song. And and maybe it's because I I remember whenever I first started a Christian fellowship, um, we were still living in Oregon then. Um, So I I would come up before the rest of my family would, but on occasion, um, one of my kids would want to ride with me. And I remember for several weeks in a row, Cam would ride with me. Um, And if you don't want me to, Cam, if you don't want to hear me, you can plug your ears if you want. It's okay. Uh, Okay. uh, anyway, uh, he would ride with me, and that song was on the radio right then, and uh, a- anyhow, I-, I would play that song, and that was the first song I ever really remember hearing Cam sing, and we'd get to that last part, and we would turn the volume up, and we would scream at the top of our lungs, I'm free, free, forever, I'm free, come join the song of all the redeemed, and we're just screaming this in the in the car on our way to church, and it's like, yes, uh, so I... Yeah, I I just I love it. Uh maybe it's cuz my son. I think it's more because we're free in Christ. So um yeah, I uh, I love it. I love it. So anyway, there's my uh there's my personal story. Um can we pray? Let's pray together. Father, God, I thank you that we're free. Um if we're in Christ, we are free forever and we don't have to question whether we're still in captivity because you've said we're free. Um, so Lord, today uh, I'm just thankful that we can be free forever um, and that we can join that song of the redeemed. We can say with generations and generations of believers before us, this great cloud of witnesses, we can say along with them that we are free. Um, Lord, and we remember that today on this Palm Sunday as we, we think of of Jesus, as we think of our Savior riding into Jerusalem to shout of Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, just being celebrated as the coming king. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you that we can be free, not just because of that day, but because of what, lied, because of what lies ahead of him. Father, I pray that as we open this word, you would remind us that following after our Savior, following after Jesus is not always easy. Um, Lord, I pray that you would remind us, though, that it is worth it because we're free. So, Father, I pray that you would guide us into your word today, that you would teach us from your word, and that you would just send your spirit to empower us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It's good to be with you all. This honestly, this is one of my favorite parts of every Sunday morning. Just looking at y'all, I mean, uh, I love it. Uh, it's good stuff. So, what we've been doing—if you—if you're new here, if you haven't been following along, or you just forget from week to week what we're doing—we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew's Matthew chapter five to seven. So, we've been we've been walking through the sermon, and we're going to conclude it today. So, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew seven. Uh, we're going to begin in verse thirteen today. Uh, but we've been walking through this sermon that Jesus preached. And today we come to this conclusion where Jesus kind of ties it all together and he brings it, uh, brings it to a head here and, and he makes his final points. Um, and I think it's really, it's, it's really perfect for the day that we're celebrating uh, Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem. Because uh, on that day, like we read just a little bit ago, Jesus came riding in, he came to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. There's these crowds of people coming out before him, laying their coats down on the road, cutting branches off of trees, laying them down in front of Jesus as this triumphant victor, marching into Jerusalem, and people are celebrating Jesus. The people are proclaiming Jesus as their triumphant victor. And this is the path that Jesus took. But just a few days later, that, that crowd turns. That crowd's, it, their tone changes. They go from celebrating Jesus as this triumphant victor to turning on him and, and calling for his crucifixion. From mocking him for, to, to spitting on him to, to just absolutely showing disgust towards him. Um, which, which shows us there's, there's these two pictures of this crowd. We don't hear much about the third option, because there's not a third option. We see these two crowds here, and it's perfect that this is the day that we're we're looking at this text, um, because this is what it took for Jesus. Um, Today, we're going to talk about a a path. We're going to talk about two paths, specifically. Um, And really, in a lot of ways, the text that we're going to look at today echoes one that we looked at just a few months ago. It echoes Psalm 1. How many of y'all still have it memorized? Oh, good. There's a couple of you. I think we're like two for 100. That's not a very good percentage, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, I think I could get through the first half of it memorized, but I don't know that I could get through all of it. Um, But we memorized Psalm 1 together, and in a lot of ways, the text we're going to look at today has echoes of Psalm 1, this picture of these two ways, these two paths. Um, I'm just going to read Psalm 1 as just as a refresher, because we talked about this, I think it's been... Probably about five months ago now, but uh, we looked at this just a few months ago. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers." The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, I'm really proud of some of you. I saw you mouthing it as I was reading it. So I know know more than two of you know it. So that's good. That's good. Oh, did you put it up there? Did I send it to you? Oh, my goodness, I failed. I forgot I sent it to put it in. Hey, look at that. You know, preachers mess up too. All right, here we go. Anyway, but if you remember back to that, we talked about this fun word. You remember the fun word juxtaposed? You guys remember that word? Anybody tell me what it means? No, it's okay. This juxtaposition, these, these setting of two ways, you have one way that leads to perishing and one way that leads to righteousness, and, and God sets them side by side so that we can contrast the two. That's a juxtaposition. They said two different things side by side so you can contrast them. And these two ways are being juxtaposed. And in many ways, that's what's happening in today's text also. Here in a minute, we're going to read this, and we're going to see that God, again, through Matthew this time, is setting before us two ways. We have this picture of two gates. We have this picture of two trees. We have this picture of two people, one professing Lord, Lord, the other one not professing Lord, Lord. And then we have two foundations. We have these these two ways set before us. And this is maybe the biggest question we could ask. Which path will we take? Which path are we on? Maybe we should start with that. And which way will we take? Um, And as Jesus does this, he issues some warnings. That's kind of how he frames this. He he issues these warnings, four of them that I I found here. These warnings to help us stay on the right path, to follow Jesus as we live this countercultural life. As we live the life that he's called us to. So let's stand together. Let's read God's word. And then we'll dive into these warnings. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching, he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. So Jesus lays out these final warnings. These final warnings as he's encouraging, he's giving this final thrust, encouraging his followers to live this countercultural life. And he issues these four warnings. Because there's going to be opposition. There's always going to be opposition to living the life that Jesus has called us to. So, Jesus prepares his followers by issuing these warnings. First, Jesus warns against conformity. Jesus here, he warns against conformity. Now, I, I, I want to say this. We need to understand we're going to conform to something. One way or the other. So, whenever I say Jesus warns us against conformity, he's warning us against conformity to the world. To the ways of the world. Um... Really, what he's saying is you don't have to be just like the rest of the crowd. You don't have to look just like everybody around you. You don't have to look like the world. Verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life if you find it? See, just like Psalm 1, just like Psalm 1 we have these two ways, these two roads juxtaposed, right? You see, there's a wide road and there's a narrow road. There's a broad gate, there's a narrow gate. We see we get these, these two things set side by side. Um, quick question, how many of y'all uh, actually live in Mound City? Okay, so it's more than half. Um, I know some of y'all don't, but that's okay. Most of you are at least familiar with Mound City. Uh, honestly, I was familiar with this next picture here. Uh, don't put it up just yet. Um, I was familiar with this before I ever lived in Mound City, but I, I just want to say, Sometimes having grown up in Oregon, I give Oregon a hard time, like I, I criticize Oregon every once in a while, but but here's some criticism against Mount City. Y'all need to get this figured out. Steve, could you put that picture up? All right, how many of you know where that is? How many of you can place that picture? Oh, hang on, hang on, it's coming. I don't know, it's, the screen's been having uh, issues this morning, so it's not Steve, it's the, the screen itself. Can you see it well enough? Can any of you identify that? Some of you know where it is? Uh, Yeah, if you want to turn and look at the back, it's on the back wall. Um, Everybody look at Steve, he's pretty. Uh Yeah, okay. How many of you know where this is? Okay, I'm going to use a word that I wouldn't typically use. This is the dumbest intersection I've ever seen. Like, what in the world happened here? Like, I give Oregon a hard time, but at least it's pretty square, right? Uh, Now, I understand what happened here. It's One road's going this way. The other way, it's not a 90-degree angle, so they made it work. But what we're learning about, what we're talking about here from God's Word, it's not this intersection. There's like five different ways you could go off that intersection. What in the world happened? Like, whoever was laying the town out should have been fired long before that happened. anyway. I'm probably insulting somebody's relatives. I'm sorry. Um, it's a joke. It's a joke. Um, but really, that's awful. So that's not what Jesus sets before us here, though, is it? He says there's two ways. Two. It's right or left. And it's not really a fork in the road. It's like you're going down the interstate. and You know they have the, the crossings for emergency vehicles. I've always wanted just to, just to rip through one of those. But I know I'm not supposed to, so I, I don't. Um, but, you know, it's like those crossings right there. And it's one way or the other. There's not, a, there's not a third, fourth, or fifth option. There's one choice to make. Are you going that direction or that direction? And as we're going to see, the destinations are as far apart as they could possibly be. It's not a fork in the road because that indicates that they could be further apart. The destinations are as far apart as they could possibly be. It is not like this. Instead, there are two options. There's the wide road and the narrow road. Only two. Now... How, in, in what way is the wide gate wide and the broad road broad? In what way are they wide and broad? Well, we have to look at what they're compared to here, right? Um, they're compared to the narrow and difficult road. So how is it wide? Well, the word, we need to look at the word narrow. The word narrow here, the word narrow here could be translated as straight. As a matter of fact, some of your translations probably say the straight path. The straight path, Right? Anybody, anybody have a translation that says the straight path? Some of you? Okay. Well, that's what this word could be. See, the straight path, the narrow gate, isn't accommodating. It's not going to co- accommodate your preferences. It's not going to accommodate what you want. It's exclusive, which sounds like it's being critical of some other things, and that's probably because it is. See, the broad path is tolerant of every other way. It's kind of like every, every lane leads to the same place. Just, just keep going on the path you're on. Eventually, you're all, it's all going to wind up in the same place, right? Jesus says no. There's this narrow or this straight path that is exclusive. It leads by itself to the destination. See, the world's going to tell you that there are various versions of truth. Y'all ever heard somebody say, well, that's my truth. I just got to live my truth. Y'all ever heard somebody say something like that? I hate that. Please don't ever say that. Like, I, I, some of you are... <laughs> I hope you don't say that regularly. Uh, somebody's going to get bingo. I, I don't care if you say that regularly or not. That's just not true. God has exclusive rights on truth. He has the exclusive right to truth. There's one truth, and it belongs to God. Not to somebody else, not to you, not to me. See, the world's going to say that it's... Uh, y'all ever heard the, the the prism thing? Like, you look from different angles, you see different colors? Well, there is there is some some aspect of truth to that. Sure. If you and I watch the same event, we see, we see a car crash out on the highway and we're trying to tell the officers what happened. Sorry, I didn't mean to look at you. Uh, oh man, I feel like a jerk now. Uh, so if you happen to witness a car crash out on the highway and uh, it, the police officers are asking you what happened and you were looking from over here and you're saying, here's what I saw in this, but somebody else was looking from over here and they see this and they say, well, that's not really what I saw or at least it's not what I thought I saw. One of those two has to be wrong. Make sense? Because one thing, one event actually happened, right? If they contradict one another, one of them or both of them have to be wrong. Because one thing actually happened. One thing actually took place. God has the exclusive rights on truth. And it doesn't matter whether we look at it from that angle or from that angle. God has exclusive right to that truth. There is one truth. And the world will try to tell you that truth is subjective that it, it belongs to you or me or we make our own truth or truth can be whatever we we dis, whatever we just think it up to be whatever we devise it to be no it's not truth is truth that's like the most obvious saying in the world because words mean things truth indicates that it is true so if your truth and my truth contradict each other one of them's wrong that's how it is with christianity See, the thing is, the world will try to say, yeah, okay, so so what you're saying about Jesus being the only way to God, like the only way to be forgiven of sins, like you're saying that he has the exclusive right on that, well, okay, maybe that's your truth, but the world's going to say, like, yeah, but still, can't I just, like, can I be a good person? I think I'm a pretty good person. Surely God will forgive me if I just, like, if I, if I do some good things and, like, we, okay, if that's true, this cannot be true, because Jesus said, I am the only way to the Father. He's the only way to be forgiven. Which means if somebody else says, well, that might be true for you, but it's not for me, that person's wrong. There can only be one of those things that is true. See, the Christian faith is not accommodating to multiple versions of truth. There is one truth. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the only truth. It's not, he's not accommodating other people's positions on how to obtain eternal life. Jesus says it's found in me. Period. There's not another way. See, the broad road, that wide road will tell you there are all these different ways to get there. It's okay. You can swerve all over the road because it's like an 18-lane highway and they're all yours. Just do what you want. Jesus says, oh no, the, the road is straight and it's narrow. It's narrow. Or it's straight and it's narrow. Jesus says, I have the only, the only truth. And he says those who find this narrow path, they're going to face persecution because Jesus says that it's straight and it's difficult or it's narrow when it's difficult. In what way is it difficult? Well, the, the word in the Greek is, is a fun one to say. I just, I didn't put it in here. I just want to say it. It's flipsis. Uh, that T-H-L sound, that flipsis is fun to say. So anyway, that's where it comes from in the Greek. And the word always indicates some kind of persecution. Some kind of persecution. You, if you are on the straight path, if you enter through the narrow gate, it will be difficult because there will be opposition. There will be opposition. The world around us will tell us, no, 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 there's other ways. There are other things. It's okay. You, why, why, are you, why are you judging me because you're saying you have the only way? Do you know how that makes me? F-? Well, that's what the Bible says. Jesus says he has the exclusive rights to truth. So one gate is broad, because it's, and then we find that it's easy to find, because anything will do. I mean, you can find the broad gate just by, well, living. You're going to walk through that gate. But the other one is narrow, and it's difficult to find. It's found only in Jesus. So we see that they're different, that that's, that's part of the broad, but then we also find that they're different in their destination, right? I told you they're as different as they could possibly be. Jesus says one leads to destruction, the other leads to life. The destinations are as far apart as possible, either being completely destroyed or living forever. Those are the options. Romans chapter 6, 23 actually sums this up. Many of you probably haven't memorized. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Death and life, those are as different as they could be, right? You see how far apart they are. Which means that the consequences of one road instead of the other, they are extreme. The consequences are weighty. Like we need to understand which road are we on and which path will we take. So he says that the destinations are different, but he also says that the number of people on these paths is different. That's why I say that we need to make sure that we don't conform to the world. We don't conform to the crowd. Because the number is different. There's many compared to a few here. There are many people, I believe, that will reject the truth of the gospel. Um, And even saying that, I I was here last night, and I was kind of reading through my notes, and I came to this part, and it actually hit me what I was about to say. Many people will reject the truth of the gospel. And if that doesn't break your heart, I don't think you understand the gospel. There are those who will say, I don't believe it, and they will walk away from it. why well because it's easier at least immediately it's easier it seems easier might be a better way to say it see the truth about who jesus is means that there's going to be difficulty in this life there will be difficulty i know because the bible says like jesus says that in this world you will have trouble so i'm confident in this world if you are following after jesus you will face trouble you you will so walking away from it may seem easier it may seem easier now i do want to be cautious though as i say that many will many will reject the truth of the gospel i don't think that that means that there's only going to be like i don't know 15 people in the kingdom I don't think that that's what this is saying either because whenever we get to Revelation 7-9, we get this awesome picture um, that almost gives you chills. Revelation chapter 7-9, it says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's going to be this awesome scene in front of God's throne where there is a multitude, more people than you could possibly count, standing there worshiping the Lamb worshiping jesus so in what way are there few well it's by comparison clearly he's setting many against few here see proverbs 14 12 it says the decept- it talks about the deceptiveness of the human heart it says there is a way that seems right to a person but in the end it is the way of death see because of the ease of the one path of the broad path because it seems like it's going to be so simple just to stay on this path you know what We're already on this, we're already going this direction. It's a wide road. We've got all the time in the world. Let's just keep on riding this road. It seems easy to us. And it seems wise to us at first. Which is why many, I believe, will choose it. It's difficult to turn. It's difficult to repent. It's difficult to find the other road. So many will choose it over the way that Jesus is talking about. Many will. Many will. But the point that Jesus is making is that we must conform to something, but it 's not the ways of this world. We conform to Jesus. We conform to His standard, to His call. We must be different as the church um, uh, kind of cheesy, but dare I say we, we must be countercultural. We must live a countercultural life, and we have to be cautious not to capitulate to the ways of the world, but to follow the direction of Jesus must follow after him. So Jesus warns against conformity, but then he warns against deceivers. Second, Jesus warns against deceivers. Verse 15, he says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. Now, a fun question that I want to ask us, I wanted us to ask this morning, is who is this written to? Like, who is Jesus here telling, like, watch out for these wolves in sheep's clothing? Who's he talking to? Is this strictly the responsibility of a chosen few in the church? Well, certainly there is a degree of that. Absolutely. It's the responsibility of elders in the church. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, um, here he's giving instructions to the elders. He says, Be sober minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. In other words, elders, be alert, protect, protect the church. Absolutely. He says that he, or, Peter, or Paul says it again in Titus chapter one verse nine. Here he's describing the qualifications for elders, and he says, "Holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it." In other words, elders in the church have, a, have an incredible responsibility to one promote sound teaching and two defend against unsound teaching. So yes. Defending against wolves and sheep clothing is the responsibility of elders in the church. It is the responsibility of a few. But that's not all of it. It's not all of it. It is also the responsibility of the everyday Christian. Not just the elders in the church. It's the responsibility of all church members. See, the Sermon on the Mount is not given to only those who would later be called elders in the church. It's given to a crowd that came to hear from Jesus. A crowd of people. Further, first John chapter four, verse one, here Jesus' followers they're told to test the spirits. Y'all ever heard that saying, test the spirits? Well, that's what Jesus is encouraging all of his followers to do to test the spirits. In other words, determine is this teaching sound or is it not sound? He says, watching out for wolves, that's what we are to do as the church, watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, we need to be watching out for those people who are teaching false things, things that are not true. Even if they say it's their truth, if it is not biblical truth, it is not true. So, we have got to make sure that we are defending the church against wolves. But another important question, not only who is this directed to, but what do these false prophets look like? We have to ask that question. What do, false, what do these false prophets look like, these wolves in sheep's clothing? Well, the simplest answer is they look like sheep. That's what Jesus says here, right? They're, they're disguised like sheep. I mean, they just look like any other, any other churchgoer, right? Right? They, many of them can speak the language. They may be able to stand before you and tell you the difference between ecclesiology and eschatology. They might be able to tell you the difference between those two things. They might be able to say, you know what, salvation has parts, and they might be able to tell you the difference between justification, regeneration, sanctification, glorification. But does that mean that they are truly? Does that mean that they truly belong to Jesus? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Further, a lot of these wolves, they go to church. Huh. Yeah. You know, where? if you're a hungry wolf, where do you go? Where the food is. If you want some lamb, you probably ought to be with the sheep, right? So these wolves in sheep clothing, where do they go? Well, they go where all the sheep are. They go to church. They want to be with the sheep. So they go where the sheep go. But underneath, they are actually wolves, Jesus says. They are dangerous and deceitful, and the picture of wolves among the sheep demonstrates just how dangerous false teachers in the church really are. Just how serious this really is. If y'all had sheep, would you put them out there with the wolves? If so, you're not a very good shepherd. Like, I don't think you get the point. Of course not. So... We have to watch among the sheep for those that are actually wolves. And how can we tell? Because they look so much like the sheep, because many of them are disguised well, how can we tell? Well, verse 16, Jesus says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. He says, he goes on to say, you don't get grapes or figs, these good and edible things from thorn bushes and thistles, right? You don't go get these good edible things from the the harmful weeds, do you? No, of course not course not. In the same way, verse 17, he says, in the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. And and he goes on to say it's impossible for a bad tree to produce good fruit and vice versa. It's not possible. Bad trees cannot produce good fruit. Good trees cannot produce bad fruit, Jesus says. So then verse 20, he repeats this phrase. He says, so you'll recognize them by their fruit, which seems incredibly simple. Seems incredibly simple, doesn't it? You'll recognize them by their fruit. Pretty straightforward. But more questions. I'm just going to keep asking you all questions. What's fruit? What is this fruit that Jesus is referring to here? It's the the things that a person's life produces. Like what your life actually produces. In other words, your actions. And these things often take time. These things often take time to show. See, wolves can get pretty good at looking like sheep, but they can't produce good fruit which is one of the reasons that any leader in the church should be tested. Um, speaking of, uh, specifically of deacons, but I believe it also applies to elders, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, it says that they must also be tested first. They must be tested first. Because it takes time to bear that fruit. It takes time to be able to find that fruit. And oftentimes it's difficult. I was just curious... Um, to see how long it would take in this this area for a, a tree to produce fruit. So I looked up how long it would take for a fig tree. Once you planted a fig tree, how long is it going to take before it bears fruit? It's three to five years. Three to five years before you know whether this is a good tree or a bad tree. Is it going to produce good fruit or won't it? In the same way, oftentimes, these things in the church, they take time to find, to see. This fruit, it takes time. So... We need to be patient, especially as we name somebody to leadership in the church, making sure that they are not wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, I also don't think this means that we have to walk around being skeptics all the time, just assuming the worst of people. I don't think that's true either. But it doesn't mean that we can just be willy-nilly either. Now, what do these actions look like? How many of you? I know there's a couple of our dots kids in here because my kids are in here. How many of you, how many of our kids or teachers, how many of you are involved with dots? If you, if you, if you are, if you help with dots or you go to dots, raise your hand. I see a few. Some of you are like, I don't really want to raise my hand. It's okay. I get it. Cause he's going to call on us and then we're gonna have to do this thing. All right. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell everybody what's the fruit of the spirit. I thought about having Steve play the song because the fruit of the Spirit's not what? Coconut. A coconut. The fruit of the Spirit's not what? Banana. A banana. Everybody knows grapes come in bunches, yes. That's awesome. We watch these kids start singing this song, and they get around with all their friends, put their arms around them, and say, everybody knows Grave in Bunches. And then they start singing this song again. But the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh. I fully expected somebody to say, well, the fruit's not a cherry. But anyway, we'll we'll move on. So we know what the fruit of the Spirit is. And people who are in Christ, if you are a sheep, you will bear this fruit. This fruit will show up in your life. And not just part of it. Notice that the fruit there is single. It's one fruit of the Spirit. Um, Not the fruits of the Spirit. One fruit of the Spirit. And it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things will show up in a believer. And some of those things take time to produce. Absolutely, they take time to produce. I'm still working on all of them, so be patient with me. But it's not just their actions, but also their teaching. So we have to be able to look and say, okay, what is this person teaching? What are they teaching those around them? How are they encouraging? What are they leading them with? That's part of the fruit of these teachers also. And Jesus warns against conformity to the world around them, but also against deceivers within the church. So, as he ends this, this sermon on the countercultural life, Jesus warns against conformity, deceivers, and the third, he warns against nominalism. He warns against nominalism. I'll fly through these next two. Um, see, this point. Um, at this point, this may be one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. Maybe one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. Um, if you think on these words long enough, you'll understand. Okay? Because what, what this shows us, is that we can deceive ourselves. It's possible for you to deceive yourself. Okay, We can call ourselves Christians, we can say the right words, we can go through the right motions, and we can remain outside the kingdom. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. See, the Bible teaches that there will be a day of judgment. Um, Jesus refers to it in verse 22 whenever he says, On that day, on that day, this day of judgment. judgment," and I thought about rolling through a whole bunch of references here, but for the sake of time, if you want to know some of them, I've got more than a half dozen written down. If you want to know where Jesus or the Bible talks about the day of judgment, I've got references. Talk to me later. Um, but there will be a day of judgment. I can tell you that on the authority of Scripture, there will be a day of judgment. Okay. And what Jesus is saying here is that there will be some on that day who even call him Lord, but in truth, they do not belong to him. Now, what's the distinction? I want to know what the distinction between those who are in the kingdom and out of the kingdom is because some of them hear this terrifying phrase. Some of them hear this terrifying phrase, depart from me, you lawbreakers. Like, after they plead their case, like, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? Like, like we, we professed you in front of people. Like, we said that we belonged to you. And we did good things for you. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You hear how terrifying that could be? I don't know if you all pick up on that, but that's, that's terrifying to me. So what's the distinction? Because I want to know so that I don't deceive myself. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Now, that doesn't mean that we do a bunch of religious practices because that's what some of these people argue. They say, we did the religious practices. But that doesn't mean that they belonged. Because in verse 23, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So what does it mean then to do the will of the Father? I actually think this is where having multiple gospel accounts is very helpful. Um, in Luke's parallel here, in Luke 6.46, Jesus says this. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? See, the Father's will is synonymous with following Jesus, doing the things He says. So how do we know Him? We follow after Him. We come behind Him. Jesus says, take up your cross and come after me. Follow me, he says. And verse 23 gives us a hint at what we're really expected to do. It says that these people, these people who call him Lord are still turned away, because they're still turned away because Jesus, he says, I don't know you. I never knew you, he says. So the difference really boils down to this. Knowing Jesus. Not knowing about Jesus, knowing Jesus being discipled by him, belonging to him, interacting with him, not just memorizing some facts about him or saying the right, the right words or doing the right things, but knowing him, knowing the Savior, knowing Jesus personally and intimately, learning from him and following after him. The truth is we're going to talk about nominalism here in just a couple weeks, so I'm going to leave this here for now. Uh, My goal is to talk about this again here in less than a month. So the point that Jesus is making here, though, is this. Don't just know me in name only. Like, don't just say you belong to me. Belong to me. Like, not just in name, but in deed. Like, actually follow after me. And I think that's incredibly important, especially in the day that we live. It's real easy to say, yeah, I belong to Jesus. I go to church. I've occasionally done the right thing. Like, I try to do good stuff. All that, but we forsake really knowing Jesus. So nominalism is is obviously a concern, and Jesus warns against that as well as deceivers and conformity. And finally, Jesus warns against intellectualism. Now, understand, I'm not an anti-intellectual. I think that we should grow in knowledge. As a matter of fact, I think that's part of having dominion over the earth. We learn how things work and how they work together. So I am certainly not anti-intellectual, but Jesus here warns against mere intellectualism. Okay, verse 24, he says, Therefore, in other words, since not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone, in verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And again, there are two possibilities. There's a path of wisdom, and there's a path of foolishness. Two paths. And it's all determined by the foundation. All determined by the foundation. Again, I think Luke's account is helpful. In Luke chapter 6, verse 48, he says that this man, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. It takes work to build your foundation on the rock. You dig down and build on the solid rock. Because the truth is, it's easy to look good on the surface. I, I mean, it really is. It's easy to look good on the surface. But below the surface, one of these men here who built a house, one of them was on something solid, and the other was not. Above ground, they, all, they both looked good. They both built a house. It was done. One, however, had a solid foundation. The other did not. And the only thing that's going to really reveal that, according to what Jesus is saying here, is the storms of life, right? Difficulties, trials in life. And it's going to reveal what's below the surface. One stands, one crashes. Uh, This made me think of the parable of the sower um, over in Luke chapter 8. Because there we get these four. Jesus says there's a sower, goes out, scatters seed, lands on all these different types of soil. And I just want to highlight two of these here. Uh, I'm not going to go through all four because I think with two options here, I just want to show you these two. Um, So Luke, chapter 8, verse 14, we see this rocky soil. It says, And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. They might receive it, they spring up, but then before long, they wither away and they're gone. Just like the house, just like the house built on the sand. It might look good for a while, but then difficulty comes, and it comes down with a crash. But then there's also the good soil that produces something stable, which produces real fruit. Now, again, it's easy to pretend to be a Christian for a while. It's easy to pretend for a while. Um, But when we face the difficulty in life, one foundation, the one who hears Jesus' words and does them, will stand, while the other, it says, will come down with a loud crash. It's dependent on the foundation. And the point is this. You can hear, and you can even know something. You can hear, I could, look, if I was the smartest man in the world, which I am certainly not, and everybody said amen, it, <laughs> i beat you to it. So, you can hear, and you can know like, if I was able to spend my 34 years, if I had spent all of them digging through the Bible day after day after day, tirelessly figuring out a perfect systematic theology, and I come to you and I lay it all out in front of you and so that you understand it and you get all of it, like you understand how all of it works, you understand all of it, that is not going to save you. I could try all day to teach you all of these different things, and I can't save you. I don't even know who it was I heard, and I've quoted this a couple times here in the last few weeks, but I've, I've heard it said that the difference between heaven and hell is between 12 and 18 inches. 12 and 18 inches. That's the distance from your head to your heart. That's the difference. There are many of us, many of us who have heard the truth. We might even know the truth and understand how it all works. We can figure it all out. But until that sinks from our head to our heart, we remain unredeemed, unchanged. You can know all the stuff and build your house on sand. And it might look good for a little while. But when the storms of life come, if you haven't built on the solid rock of Christ, it will come crashing down. Now, I've spent time with many of those people. Um, Some in my time at seminary, I remember seeing some. Now, most of them were really truly dedicated to following after Jesus. But there were a few who would blow you away with what they knew. But if you watched their lives long enough, there was no real evidence of believing it. There was no real evidence. There was no real fruit in their lives. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you all we just need to go around constantly being amateur fruit inspectors any more than we need to be plank-eye spec inspectors, spec inspectors. But we can see it. We can see it. And it's not just the seminary. There are many in the church and out of the church who have heard and understood the word but have not submitted to it. So Jesus here, he warns against conformity to the world, deceivers in the church, nominalism and intellectualism. So what? Well, as we strive to follow Jesus, as we strive to live this countercultural life that he's laid before us, we have to strive to be different from the world. To not just take the wide path to conform to what the world says or somehow uh, just say, well, yeah, well, maybe that is true, so you know what, your truth is different than mine, maybe I can get... No, no. We have to be cautious not to conform to the ways of the world. Now, understand, I don't, want us, I don't want us just to be difficult for the sake of being difficult. That's not the point either. I'm really good at that, y'all. I can be difficult for no real reason. But whenever it comes down to truth, we need to stand on truth and not conform to what the world says. See, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, so even as we face the opposition of the world, we can withstand it. Why? Because the one that is in you, if you are in Christ, is greater than the one that's in the world. He's greater. He's better. So we have to be on guard against taking the wide path to allowing that to creep in. And we must be on guard against false teachers who would lead us astray. And there's a lot of ways that can happen. Too many to get into today. But we have to be very careful not to boil down the Christian faith to just saying, Well, pray this prayer. Raise that hand right now. We have to be very cautious not to boil it down to saying, If you come forward now... No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow after me. Praying a prayer or coming forward before the church, raising a hand, those all might be fine things. Jesus says, take up your cross, follow me. Follow me. Know me. Learn from me. It's our call to constantly, daily get up and lay down our own lives to be identified with Christ. That's what he expects of us. And false teachers would often encourage you not to live it, but just to, just to say the right words. But oftentimes, it's more than that. Oftentimes, it's simply just a head knowledge. And I was talking to one of our guys just this week, and I said, I, I read this thing. He said, I pray that God would take that knowledge of someone's head and drive it like a spike into their heart. Um, I thought, boy, I, we can give you all head knowledge, but I pray that God would come along and change your heart, that he would drive that knowledge, that 12 to 18 inches, and change you forever so today today, I pray that that 's what God would do that He'd drive that knowledge from your head to your heart, and that we might be empowered to live the countercultural life that Jesus intended for his followers let 's pray together father god i I thank you for your word um, I thank you that you warn us against the the opposition that we will inevitably face as we live this life you 've called us to, um, Lord, and I also know that we're not able to live it apart from your mercy in our lives, apart from your spirit working in us. Um, so, Father, today I want to ask that you would you would send the comforter, that you would send the teacher, that you would send your Holy Spirit, and that you would teach us and guide us and direct us, that you would empower us to to withstand the opposition, that we might be able to live this straight path, that we might be able to walk it with our Savior. Um, so, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord. I, inevitably, there are those within the sound of my voice this morning that have never made that change, who have never repented, who have never turned, uh, saying, "I don't want the broad path anymore, but I want Jesus." Father, I pray that you would convict convict those who need to be convicted. I pray that you would comfort those who need to be comforted, and I pray that you would call many to yourself, and uh, that many many might come to know you as their Savior and that they would submit to you as the Lord that you are. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.